Well, our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25 are often called the Olivet Discourse because our Lord Jesus uh, delivered it, spoke these words to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, looking over at the temple. And uh, you remember that the thing which prompted it was as uh, our Lord and his disciples left the temple complex for the last time, uh, several disciples commented on the magnificence of the buildings, and Jesus said that uh, it wouldn't be long before all of these buildings and all the stones would be utterly and completely cast down. And they were understandably shocked by that, and so they asked him, Uh, what will be the time of these things and the sign of your coming and of the end. They may well have associated those. There are rabbis who taught that uh, when the temple was destroyed, the world would end. And so they may have been thinking all these things would be lumped together. In in any event, uh, that was the thing which prompted our Lord to uh, deliver this, the fifth and final of the the five discourses that are uh, key to the structure of Matthew's gospel. And we saw last Lord's Day, in the first 14 verses, that Jesus described what he called the birth pangs, the beginning of the birth pangs of the end. Birth pangs herald a climactic and important event, and typically they become more frequent and more intense as you get closer. So those, those things may be implied in his using that language. And he mentioned several things will be part of these birth pangs. Uh, national disasters, wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising against kingdoms, natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, uh, false teachers and false teaching, and the persecution of the church. He mentioned all four of these things that would be part of these birth pangs as the end came closer. I mentioned last Lord's Day there are typically uh, several views. There are those who are called preterists who believe that all of these things have already happened and been fulfilled uh, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, others, futurists, uh, think that they all remain to happen in the future. And then others sometimes call idealists, and I would probably put myself in that can't think that uh, there's to some extent these things happen throughout church history and what our Lord is doing in this uh, discourse is using uh, what's been called um, uh, uh, prophetic foreshortening where things are uh, not always completely delineated and it's a challenge. Certainly he refers to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD but I think there are implications that these things are going to happen to varying degrees until he comes again and they reach their climax which is what we'll be looking at in our text this morning. So that's just to give you some context as we pick up our reading in Matthew 24 and verse 15. So um, please give attention as I begin reading there. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads... Let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. 
And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. That was Solomon's advice in Proverbs 27.1. James repeats this in chapter 4 of his epistle. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade with profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow may bring. That is true of every man or woman who has ever lived with the exception of one. The Lord said through Isaiah the prophet, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. And this uh, sermon, this discourse, was delivered. It's the greatest prophetic discourse in Scripture, delivered by the greatest prophet who ever lived, our own Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And as we saw last Lord's Day, Christ himself stressed that he was doing this in general, not specific terms. We looked at five different places where Jesus said specifically no one knows the exact date. So he, he's not claiming to give us uh, details upon which we can have the exact date, but he is giving us a general picture of what will happen as the time draws near of his glorious return. Four points for us as we look at our text this morning, and the first one is this. Jesus predicts that the birth pangs of the end would climax with an abomination of desolation. Jesus predicts that the birth pangs of the end would climax with an abomination of desolation. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. The abomination of desolations. Now, it's interesting, Jesus specifically refers to that abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's why I, I chose Daniel for our Old Testament reading. Uh, in fact, Daniel refers in three different places 
to the abomination or an abomination of desolation in chapter 9. And there is a prophecy there of what's been called the, the, the 69 weeks after uh, 62 weeks, anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. I'm starting, I started there in, in Daniel 9:26. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. That's a significant recurring theme, an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's the end of Daniel 9. In Daniel 11, which is a very long prophecy, people have asserted, unbelievers have asserted Daniel 11 is evidence that Daniel couldn't have been written until after uh, the second century because it's so detailed in how it lays out things that actually happened uh, during that period of history. Of course, it, it, it was written in the, the fifth century B.C. because God reveals these things in advance. But here's what he says uh, in the end of, of Daniel chapter 11, verse 30. Um, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So two ideas, the taking away of the, the, the sacrifice and then the setting up the abomination that makes desolate. And then Daniel 12:11, which we read a few minutes ago, from the time the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there should be 1,290 days. Now, again, we could spend lots of time talking about the, the days. I'm not planning to do that. The point is Daniel mentions this abomination which makes desolate three different times, and our Lord Jesus references that. The word abomination means something that causes disgust or hatred. Desolation is a state of complete emptiness or destruction. The Amplified Bible, I think, helpfully puts these together. The abomination of desolation is the appalling sacrilege which astonishes and makes desolate. Now, the book of 1 Maccabees, which is not a, a scriptural book, but it's of, of historical interest written uh, about the uh, time uh, of the Maccabean revolt when uh, they pushed back uh, against the, the tendency of the Seleucid kings to come in and Hellenize um, Israel, says that this was fulfilled when Antiochus IV Epiphanes came to Jerusalem in 168 B.C., he uh, set up uh, an altar. He, he uh, stopped circumcision, stopped all the sacrifices, and in the temple set up an altar to Zeus and killed lots of people too. And so the Maccabees, the, the book Maccabees, saw that as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Many others believe, and our Lord Jesus here in the text seems not to be looking back to something that had already happened, but looking forward to something that was still to happen. When you see this happen, he says, um, many others think it refers to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the war began in 66 um, AD. In 67 or 68, the zealots came in and, and occupied the temple, and they massacred 6,000 Jews there in the temple brought uh, Idumeans or Edomites in with them, and some think that was the abomination of desolation. Others think it refers to Titus 
coming into Jerusalem, bringing standards of the army with Caesar's image, Caesar who was worshipped as a god, bringing those into the temple, and then, of course, the destruction of the temple completely so that sacrifice and offering were done away. And there may well, I think, been a reference to that as a type or an anticipation of a still greater abomination of desolation. And it's interesting just in passing to note that the uh, early Christian historian Eusebius records that before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, many believers, many Christians who are familiar with our Lord's teaching here about when you see these things happen, flee, did flee Jerusalem and escaped uh, the, the uh, murder, uh, damage, slavery that, that fell when the, when the city fell. But um, my point is, I think there's yet to be a future fulfillment, and I think Paul refers to this. That's why I read from 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. Some people are apparently saying, well, the, the day of the Lord has already come. He says that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This seems to refer to a person, and with respect to taking his seat in the temple of God, some people think that's a reference to the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt, and it's going to happen there. Uh, others take that to be a reference to the church, that this is something that involves the church and some, some figure in the church doing this. Uh, many would also connect this with Revelation chapter 13 and the two beasts that are revealed there. Chapter 12 is the, the, uh, John's vision of the dragon and his war against the Lord and against the woman. And when she's taken away, it says in the last verse, he goes off to make war against those who testify, hold the testimony of Jesus and keep his commandments. Satan's hostility war against the church. That's chapter 12, chapter 13, two beasts. One from the sea who seems to be a political figure and then one from the land who's a religious figure, a false prophet. And uh, I'll read it to you later. I have it further on in my notes. But, but he uh, promotes the worship of the first beast. And so many connect that with a future abomination of desolation. Now some have thought our original Westminster Confession was originally drafted said that the Pope was the Antichrist and actually cited as proof text 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. American Presbyterians have subsequently revised that and all that, that, that it's uh, chapter 25 paragraph 6 it just says the Pope is in no way the head of the church. Others would look at what's happening in North Korea and China and other places where today Governments almost, in some cases, virtually require worship. The point is, I'm not sure we'll know until it actually happens. That often happens with prophecy. When it happens, then you connect the dots and say, okay, now it makes sense. But in any event, a couple of applications, brothers and sisters. First, God's grace and wisdom in telling us much, but not too much, about the future. It might not be good for us to know the exact date and time when our Lord Jesus Christ would return. In fact, obviously it wouldn't be because he's not told us. It might either be discouraging, I can't believe it's going to be so long, or promote laziness and unfaithfulness. Well, we've got plenty of time. He's not coming back. And so the Lord in his wisdom has told us a great deal about the fact that he will return 
and what we should be doing until he does and given us some general signs, but not, again, specifically. I think it reflects his grace and his wisdom. It certainly underscores the fact, I mentioned this last Lord's Day, and I think it bears mentioning again that we live in a hostile world and that Christians should not expect at any point an easy time. We should not, we're not promised two heavens. Again, the way our Lord characterizes the time between his speaking and his coming again, various things uh, going on, including this great act of uh, spiritual um, sacrilege that will culminate in the abomination of desolations. Jesus also, and in the light I appreciate David's praying for the persecuted church, Jesus validates the principle here of fleeing from danger. He says, when you see these things, and again, Eusebius indicates some of the believers there in Jerusalem as the Roman armies were approaching, thought that was being, and they acted on that and fled and, and survived. And our Lord validates that point. Jesus himself did it at times. Uh, we read in the Gospel of John, he would not go to Judea because he knew that the, the, the authorities there were plotting against him. We see that in Acts where Paul uh, and his missionary team would flee from one city to the other. They didn't stay there. Matthew Henry says, in times of imminent peril and danger, it is not only lawful but our duty to seek our own preservation by all good and honest means. And if God opens a door of escape, we ought to make our escape. Otherwise, we do not trust God but tempt him. There may be a time when even those that are in Judea where God is known and his name is great must flee to the mountains. While we only go out of the way of danger, not out of the way of duty... We may trust God to provide a dwelling for his outcast. In times of public calamity, when it is manifest that we cannot be serviceable at home and may be safe abroad, providence calls us to make our escape. He that flees may fight again. So that's Matthew Henry's take on this. But I think it's also interesting uh, not just to say that we should pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. The Lord would give them wisdom. Lord, should they? flee from their particular situations and can they where and how should they go but we should also uh, pray that our government and other governments would cooperate and help them and support organizations that help them help persecuted Christians but we also have to say at the same time that scripture teaches there are times when the Lord calls believers intentionally to stay in the face of that, Our Lord himself, remember at one point it says he would no longer go to Judea because he knew that they were uh, plotting against him. But then at the end, as he's heading up for his final week, uh, the disciples said, well, let's go along and die with him. He knew what was about to happen, and yet he knew it was the Father's will. And Paul, who fled at other times in Acts 21, was determined to go to Jerusalem, even though a prophet came down and predicted he was going to be bound, and the people pled with him not to go, but he, he believed it was the Lord's will. There are times, on the other hand, when the Lord calls his people to do that, and we need godly wisdom to know the difference. So Christ suggests that the birth pangs of the end continue over time, and as they do, there will come a climactic abomination of desolation, a great final act of religious desecration of some kind, but he doesn't stop there. That brings us to our second point. Jesus also predicts that the birth pangs of the end would climax with great tribulation. Jesus also predicts that 
that the birth pangs of the end will climax with great tribulation. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That's verse 21. 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, Josephus, in his account of the uh, siege and destruction of Jerusalem, describes many awful things. It was a horrific experience. And there were some natural uh, disasters and phenomena as well as a terrible slaughter. I've read a million and other uh, sources said two million Jews perished in that, that war and that campaign. And so some have suggested that that was fulfilled in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, this description. But I don't think that's the case. I don't see how it can be. I think there has to be, and many others agree, yet some future great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. And I think our Lord Jesus was looking at and beyond Jerusalem's destruction to a later and even greater time of tribulation before he returns. Likely, again, combining the things he's talked about earlier, even more intense. Remember, birth pangs that get more intense and, and closer together as you get to the delivery. Uh, national disasters, wars, rumors of wars, kingdoms rising against kingdoms. Natural disasters, earthquake, famine, drought, and increased persecution of the church. And so... With respect to persecution, again, if this is part of what he's talking about, this period of great unparalleled tribulation, it reminds us of the pervasive, the powerful, and the terrible realities of sin and Satan at work in the world, the hostility of natural man to God and to his truth and his people who are identified with him. And it, it points out the fact that we are called brothers and sisters. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, uh, by the work of the Spirit, we're united to him, both by our faith and by the Spirit coming to be the seal of our salvation. And part of that union means that we are called and privileged to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. When Satan couldn't attack the Lord directly... Revelation 12 says he went to make war against his people, and this is part of the picture here of this uh, great time of tribulation. Apparently, again, increased persecution. Revelation 12, 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And with respect to the natural disasters, if again, that's presumably part of what he's talking about here, earthquakes and famine and so on. Uh, I think, among other things, this shows us something of the justice of God, that these things are a form of God's judgment on this rebellious and sinful world. It's not the only form, but it's one form of that, that he visits these kinds of uh, natural disasters as he did the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it shows his justice. He punished Israel's unbelief in 70 AD. That was the final climactic, uh, the close of the old covenant and, and Israel's punishment for their stubborn unbelief, the rejection of their Messiah. And this 
tribulation on the whole world is part of God's just punishment against evildoers. But it also shows us, brothers and sisters, at the same time, the wonderful grace of God. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short, our Lord Jesus says. The Lord, even though he'd be perfectly just in, in continuing to pour out this destruction, for the sake of his elect people, he's going to cut it short. And it also points, I think, to his all-sufficient grace to his children to be able to face and endure suffering and trial when he calls us to do that. We need to claim that grace for our brothers and sisters, our persecuted brothers and sisters, but for ourselves as well. And we need to practice suffering in a sense, not that we go looking for it, but as we walk with our Lord Jesus Christ, we will encounter it. And learning to suffer well, to suffer by the power of the Spirit, continuing to trust and obey and praise and thank God. Learning to deny ourselves. And again, we live in a narcissistic age. One of the great idols is self, the sovereign self. It's all about who I think I am, who I want to be, what I want to do. No, brothers and sisters, the call to follow Jesus Christ is a call to deny ourselves and take up his cross. And so... Learning in the course, continue to learn as we walk with him, as we have to deal with trials to deny ourselves, to confess Christ, even in an age where more and more people not only not interested, but hostile to that confession. Do it humbly, wisely, graciously, but faithfully. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a great deal that's intellectually and theologically stimulating and intriguing about this whole topic. We could spend lots of time talking about the, the, different, the days and the weeks and all these other things. But at the end of the day, the end, whether it's the end of the age or the end of our lives, your life, whichever comes first, is not just a matter, shouldn't be a matter of mere intellectual fascination. It's a matter of profound personal and practical significance for every person who's ever lived. This terrible judgment on the world that we are reading and thinking about now is only a snippet of the judgment yet to come. And it's interesting, our Lord ends this discourse. At the end, the last verse in chapter 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are only two ultimate destinations for every person who's ever lived. Eternal damnation in hell or eternal life and glory with the Lord in heaven. Where will you go? If your end came today, whether the Lord returns or whether he calls you out of this world, have you acknowledged your need for salvation because of your sin, your inability to save yourself, and the wonderful sufficiency and grace of God in Jesus Christ, that he's done everything necessary for sinner salvation. And our place is only to come to him in repentance and faith and receive as a gift of grace Christ and his work. Again, I think it's important that we don't get too distracted by all the interesting details and focus on the real issue. This is leading up, it's a picture of God's judgment leading up to the final end of the age and the final judgment. So, besides the abomination of desolation, 
our Lord also predicts a time of great tribulation before his return, but even that's not all. Our third point this morning is Jesus also predicts that the climax of the birth pangs would include false Christs and prophets so convincing as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus also predicts that the climax of the birth pangs would include false Christs and false prophets so convincing as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And again, we saw last week our Lord talked about the fact that false teachers and false teaching are going to be part of the birth pangs throughout this age. And um, here he seems to suggest that like the tribulation, there's going to be tribulation, but the tribulation is going to come to a great head at the end. And he seems to imply the same thing will be true of false teaching. There's going to be a climax of that false teaching. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Very convincing. And among their errors will be false claims about his having returned. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and there he is, do not believe it. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And our Lord himself says their errors will be accompanied by great signs and wonders. False prophets and false Christ will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. And again, Paul mentions this, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Revelation 13.11, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It performs great signs, making, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded and yet lived. And you remember Pharaoh's magicians were able to imitate the first several of the signs that the Lord had given Moses when he sent him to Pharaoh to redeem the Israelites. And um, brothers and sisters, it's interesting that we live in it. Daniel, I didn't stop, but Daniel says in those days, he suggests that travel, people will move to and fro and knowledge will increase. We live in an age where people move to and fro. We're blessed to have some dear friends from the United Kingdom who flew in on a plane Friday uh, to visit, flew in with several hundred people on that plane, and that was one of thousands, maybe ten thousands of planes flying just on Friday around the world. And Daniel says knowledge will increase, and we live in an age where that's true in various ways. And who knows, it seems to me that if they're still operating, and even as they operate now, the modern communication, the internet, social media, uh, television, all these things provide ways for information to get out, including false information. False teachers. 
Public education is a great blessing, and biblical religion has always stressed education. God communicates his word in scripture. It's important for his people to be able to read it. And so not only among the Jews, but among the Christians, there was a stress historically when they came to the colonies here in America, stress, establish schools and teach people to read. Education is a wonderful thing, but it depends on who's controlling it and what their goals are, what they think should be taught. And again, I don't, I don't want to preach to the choir, but we know that uh, that's a growing problem in our country, the whole education system being co-opted to teach all kinds of false things. The power of government is growing and government is ordained by God. It's a minister of God, but it has a certain limited role and we, in other parts of the world, we see governments are totalitarian. They rule everything completely. I think I heard from my friend, if I'm remembering correctly, that 0.19% of the Chinese population belongs to the communist, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, 0.19, and they control a billion and a half people. And we see in our own land a, a desire of, among many, a tendency for the power of government to grow, and at the same time, the church in many cases seems to be weakening, teaching outright error or being weak on the truth and often superficial and ignorant about many things. So we have an increasing problem with, again, on many fronts, our, our culture generally. It's interesting, again, Matthew Henry says, neither miracles nor multitudes are certain signs of the true church. Neither miracles nor multitudes. And he says, for all the world wonders or follows after this beast and so again brothers and sisters let me encourage you among other things to claim this promise Jesus says they're going to be so convincing uh, as to lead astray if possible the implication is it's not ultimately possible the elect and so claim that promise Lord grant that I might uh, as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that gives evidence of your election as one of your elect might be enabled not to be led astray. Give me discernment. I said it last Sunday, I'm saying it again, and again, I may be preaching to the choir, but I'd rather you be um, uh, overly uh, motivated than, than uh, comfortable. Be Bereans. They examined the scriptures. Even when Paul came, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. And as when they saw they were, they believed. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul told the Thessalonians, test everything. How do you test something? You have to have a touchstone, a, a rule that you measure it against. Test it against scripture. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. 1 John 4.1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. The spirits John's referring to here are not just disembodied, they're people, teachers. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. At the heart of, of a, a true confession uh, of the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Again, I think that looks, looks forward to a great ultimate Antichrist, but the spirit that animates, animates this great Antichrist, he says, is already in the world in these various false teachers. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So praise the Lord for that. Continue to be diligent, discerning, wise, and attend the Westminster Confession of Faith Sunday School class. <laughs> I commended the confession to you last Lord's Day as a, a, a wonderful, a, not a rule, but a help in uh, summarizing the great truths of the gospel and the faith. And um, then at the time, I'd forgotten that you're having a class. And so, uh, you know, I, I can make that even more specific today by encouraging you to do that. So in addition to an abomination of desolation and a great tribulation, our Lord also makes clear that false teaching of an especially persuasive kind or powerful kind will also precede his return and will, in fact, lead many astray. But despite that reality, he gives people a very clear promise and plumb line which can keep them from being led astray with respect to his return. That's our last point this morning. Jesus predicts that his coming will be so glorious and magnificent that there will be no doubt or question when it occurs. Jesus predicts that his return or his coming will be so glorious and magnificent that there will be no doubt or question when it occurs. Again, he, not, he doesn't just warn here about false teachers generally, but he says they're going to be specifically assertions, uh, false assertions of his return, and he says plainly, don't believe them. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. And again, some of them might be just a hocus-pocus ledger domain and others might be really spiritual by the, the power of the evil one. But he says there are going to be great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in their inner rooms, do not believe it. And then he makes clear that his return, when he comes, there will be no doubt at all about it. Verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And, and I didn't realize until breakfast this morning, talking with uh, my dear brother Mark, about different kinds of lightning. I think we typically have Fork lightning, which, uh, which is a sharp, bright streak, and, uh, but there is also sheet lightning that goes like this. And depending upon different parts of the world and, and so on, uh, different uh, uh, geographical and other factors, lightning can be different. But the point is, our Lord here says there will be no doubt. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be so brilliant, so bright that no one will have a question about it. Luke. Words it slightly differently in 1724, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And he seems to be at least alluding to another passage from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, which he's going to quote uh, in verse 30. It's not in our passage. It will be in the text next Lord's Day. 
But in Daniel chapter 7, he said, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one came like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Was, him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom not be destroyed. But this reference to uh, one coming on the clouds of heaven, a son of man, that stresses his humanity. He saw a man. But a man coming on the clouds of heaven, which elsewhere in Scripture, only God comes in the clouds. And he receives this eternal kingdom. And Jesus is going to quote that in his trial. In, in Matthew 26, the high priest, he remains silent with all these different charges against him. He doesn't answer. And when the high priest puts him under oath, I adjure you in the name of the living God, are you the Christ? And then he quotes this verse. You said so, and that's an affirmation um, in, in, in this context. Not only is it true, but you've said it yourself. What you've said is true. I tell you from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Revelation 1.7, John says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So it's going to be so magnificent there will be no question about it when it happens. And if anybody suggests that anything less that he's come, don't believe it. Now that still leaves the question of verse 28. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles or the vultures will be gathered together. This seems to have been something of a current proverb in Jesus' day. In Luke 17, 37, he also uses similar language in a different context. And so it seems to be referencing a proverb they'd be familiar with. And uh, commentators have two basic understandings about what does this mean. Uh, you'll see the vultures wherever the corpse gathers. Uh, some think it suggests the same idea of the lightning, the visibility of Christ's return. When you see a cloud of, we, we don't have eagles around here, but we do have uh, vultures buzzards and when you see a cloud of buzzards circling you know that something has died and so some would see that as just another reference to evidence one more thing it'll be very obvious when it happens others seem to see that as a reference to the judgment that will be part of Christ's coming and the fact that again uh, uh, many uh, will be killed as part of this great tribulation but in any event I tend to think that the uh, the first one is um, a better explanation, but in any event, you, you can decide. But I think the, the reference to the lightning, there's no question about what that means. No doubt about it when it happens. Brothers and sisters, the final victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, our final victory, is not in the least in doubt. Christ is not only risen, he's returned to glory, he's seated at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and on earth. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when, and to some extent, how. And I think this is a good reminder of the grace of God. The, the, the two times we have that expression, the elect. If it weren't for the elect, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, he's going to shorten that time of great tribulation. And these signs are going to be so dramatic and powerful that... They would lead astray if possible, but it's not going to be possible, even the elect. Praise God.
that there is a great host that no man can number from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue of God's elect, chosen, beloved before the foundation of the world, redeemed in time, and ultimately to be glorified when Jesus returns. No one alive is going to be in doubt about Jesus' return. Some will welcome and rejoice, and some will not. Revelation chapter 6 talks about those who will cry out to the mountains, fall upon us, cover us, hide us from him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? How about you? If you were to come today, would you greet him with shouts of welcome or cries to be hidden by the mountains? Well, again, by way of review and summary, four points. Jesus predicts the birth pangs of the end would climax with an abomination of desolation, with great tribulation, and with false Christs and prophets so convincing as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But he also predicts that his coming will be so glorious that there will be no doubt about it at all, so magnificent that everyone will know. Brothers and sisters, I don't think I could give you a better conclusion than to read the words of J.C. Ryle commenting on Acts, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke 21, 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Ryle says, however terrible the signs of Christ's second coming may be to the impenitent, they need not strike terror into the heart of the true believer. They ought rather to fill him with joy. They ought to remind him that his complete deliverance from sin, the world, and the devil is close at hand and that he shall soon bid an eternal farewell to sickness, sorrow, death, and temptation. The very day when the unconverted shall lose everything shall be the day when the believer shall enter into his eternal reward. The very hour when the worldly man's hope shall perish shall be the hour when the believer's hope shall be exchanged for joyful certainty and full possession. The servant of God should often look forward to Christ's second advent. He will find the thought of that day a cordial, and a cordial was uh, uh, something that was given a medication, a drink or something to revive people. He will find the thought of that day a cordial to sustain him under all the trials and persecutions of this present life. Yet a little while let him remember, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The words of Isaiah will be fulfilled. The Lord God shall wipe away every tear from all, tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall be taken away from off all the earth. One sure recipe for a patient spirit is to expect little from this world and to be ever waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God help each one of us to follow that wholesome recipe and to be able to pray the prayer with which John ends not only the book of the Revelation, but the whole Bible. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand for prayer. Our gracious and our glorious 
Father in heaven, we thank you more than we can say. We thank you that we'll have all eternity to express our praise, our thanks, our gratitude, but even then we'll not exhaust it for your grace lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ, the work that he has already done by redeeming us, the work that he's doing even now as he intercedes for us and prepares a place for us, as he orders all things uh, on a macrocosmic scale and on a micro scale, uh, not just for your glory but for our good, and all that he will yet do when he comes again. We pray that by the, your gracious spirit you would help us